check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, welcome to episode 98 of the podcast. Today is the second half of my interview with Dr. Jan Hasbrook. Last week, she helped us understand the concept of fluency and why it's so complicated. Today, we're going to talk about oral reading fluency. You may be familiar with the ORF norms chart. The chart shows the oral reading fluency norms of students as determined by data collected by Jan Hasbrook and George Tyndall. And when teachers give their students oral reading fluency assessments where they check to see how many words they can read correct per minute, They can refer to this chart to see whether their student's oral reading fluency is on track or whether there's a red flag that we need to figure out what else is wrong that's causing them to read so slowly. Again, I apologize. My audio for this episode is not the best, but Dr. Hasbrook comes in nice and clear. We'll get started right after the intro. Welcome to Triple R Teaching, where we encourage you to think differently about education by helping you reflect, refine, and recharge. This isn't just about trying something new as you educate those entrusted to your care. We'll equip you with simple strategies and practical tips that will fill your toolbox and reignite your passion for teaching. It's time to reflect, refine, and recharge with your host, Anna Geiger. There are three publications. There are three sets of Hasbrook and Tyndall norms. Uh, The first one, the publication was in 1992, but that's a whole uh, story of the challenges of getting research published sometimes because right around the time I first started working with Jerry Tyndall at the University of Oregon, which was the mid-80s, I became a reading coach in 1985 and uh, by 1986, I was working with Jerry, and he had come, as I mentioned, from the University of Minnesota, where he was part of a group of people who essentially invented uh, a whole bunch of uh, measures called curriculum-based measures, one of which was this measure of oral reading fluency, of letting uh, having students read out loud for a minute and scoring their words correct per minute score. That was That's one of a suite of assessments called curriculum-based measures. But Jerry was a, a doctoral student working with Stan Dino and folks there, there who invented this measure. So it was, it was very new. But Jerry was a big believer that, that words correct per minute were really, was the thing. You know, you needed to measure, use that measure with students, and it was going to tell you a whole lot about who was on track and who wasn't. Um, And of course, it was a brand new measure. I'd never heard of it before. And having been a reading specialist for 15 years, I was extremely skeptical. I just thought, as many people still do when they first hear about ORF, oral reading fluency, that we should really use a one-minute measure of cold, unpracticed reading, and that is enough to tell us anything about I, I was I was as skeptical as anybody when I first heard about it. Um, and at that time, because it was a new measure, there were no norms to indicate what those numbers should mm-hmm. be or what does a third grader reading 83 words correct per minute in the winter, what mm-hmm. does that mean? We, did, we had no norms. What the original researchers suggested, the University of Minnesota folks suggested, was that schools 
establish their own norms, and they had procedures for doing that. Test all your kids and create norms for your building. Um, and I, when Jerry told me that, I thought, well, that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Um, I had spent my entire 15 years up to that point working in low-performing mm-hmm. schools. I said, what's the value in assessing our low, we already know we're a low-performing school. Who cares about the 50th percentile at a low-performing school? And uh, I said, we need national norms. He thought that was a good idea and uh, put me in a little room with a desk and a ruler and a calculator and brought stacks and stacks and stacks of paper where very few people back then were doing ORF measures of their students, but there were a few. And through that process of literally using a ruler, going down and typing in on my calculator scores, we came up with some norms for oral reading fluency from second grade through fifth grade. That was the first study. That's all the data we had. That's why it was only, and it was I think total about 10,000 students, which was still a lot of rulers and mm-hmm. typing. That's a lot of scores for me to put in all by myself. Uh, no computers back at that time, but um, or I didn't have one. So we wrote uh, up a little article about this new way to assess kids called oral reading fluency and what the score should be. Um, and that was probably, I probably finished that work in 1987 or 1988. And it took us until 1992 to get it published because pe- what everybody, every time we submitted it, people's reaction was like mine. They were horrified. Why would we assess kids on a one minute measure? That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Who cares about? So it was finally published in a, um, not a research journal, a special ed teacher practitioner journal called uh, Teaching Exceptional Children, they saw the value of it and they published it. And then over years, the reading world discovered it. Um, uh, You know, the internet started, I guess, in the early stages and people start because it became a measure that people were interested in and there were no national norms. There was no Dibbles or Amesweb or Acadiance or Fastbridge or Easy CBM. In those early years, people were just creating their own assessments. Mm-hmm. So they wanted norms. So then in 2006, we did it again. And by then, we had access to a quarter of a million mm-hmm. scores from first grade to eighth grade. And we did the study again and published that in The Reading okay. Teacher. And that we chose that not because it's a reading a, a, a research journal, but it we wanted to get this information into the hands of as many teachers as we could. Um, And then 10 years after that, we thought it was time to update. And so in 2017, we compiled our newest set of norms. Uh, That's over 6 million students. This time we had access though only to first through sixth grade for a lot, a lot of reasons. But those norms, when you look at the three sets of, of norms and other norms, now, of course, we do have the publishers who have created commercially available assessments from those from that research. And looking at all the norms together, they kind of coalesce around the same. There are certainly differences between Ames Web benchmarks and Easy CBM benchmarks and Dibbles benchmarks a little bit. People using those commercially available 
products sometimes do go then to the Hasbrook and Tyndall norms because ours are compiled from multiple measures. So it it's not just aligned with a single uh, assessment. But the the second part of your question about how should we use them, they, they really are to help teachers get a sense of where their students are in terms of their acquisition of automaticity. That's a very important piece of information, and to be able to acquire that piece of information in one minute is pretty mm-hmm. extraordinary. It's, it's not, and never was intended to be, the only measure. Um, that the, it doesn't diagnose reading problems. It it doesn't tell us a lot. It actually doesn't really tell us about a student's fluency. It tells us about their automaticity. And there are many people who have tried hard to consider renaming that assessment, oral reading fluency, and changing that name, because that then gets fluency, as we've talked about, is much more complex. It has expression and prosody. It is connected with comprehension. Um, And a 60-second assessment doesn't measure that. But it does measure automaticity. And we now have so those folks back at the University of Minnesota were absolutely right um, that they were on to something. We now have Ah, close to 40 years of research where the words correct per minute score has been shown to correlate or predict comprehension almost better than anything else we have, and it takes a minute to do that. So we do know that in general, those students who have not reached the 50th percentile on an oral reading fluency measure when reading unpracticed grade level material that those students are not on track for future success in, in reading. And that's the primary way I, I feel that uh, those norms should be used to check on individual students' relationship to the normative progress that we know students, students should have. Um, and some very recent research came out that I'm citing a lot. It was White et al. that did a study um, where they went back and looked at NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and wanted to know what uh, ORF scores, or Words Correct Per Minute score, best predicted NAEP scores. And it, to me, it's really fascinating because what they found was very clearly that the Hasbrook and Tyndall, and they were looking at fourth graders. So the NAEP, the first NAEP test is given to fourth graders. The fourth graders who were at the top of the NAEP, which is the advanced level, were reading at the level of the 75th percentile on Hasbrook and Tyndall norms. The students who were at the advanced level, which is where we want students to be advanced basic level, were reading around the 50th percentile of the Hasbrook and Tyndall norms. And the kids who were not successful on the NAEP, which is a comprehension Mm -hmm. test, bottom line, kids who were not successful were below the 50th percentile. So that suggests to me that what we've been saying for years, based mostly on hypothesis, that you need to get kids to the 50th percentile. That's true, but there is some advantage to being as high as the 75th But that study really, to me, feels quite conclusive that those kids who are just reading super Mm -hmm. fast, um, 
that doesn't seem to have any benefit for comprehension, which makes sense to me as a practitioner. But now we have some good, clear evidence about that. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that with one of my kids who um, he's, he's of all our six kids. He's the one that least prefers to pick up a book and he can read, quote, very fluently. But um, I'll ask him what it was about and he doesn't always know. So we're work I'm working on slowing him down. But, you know, it's just reading is a race. Don't worry about expression. And that is not that's not where we're headed. For a teacher that nope. that um, does the world reading fluency with her students, and then she sees that some are low um, where they should be. I know you've talked about how ORF is a thermometer; it doesn't diagnose. So, what next? If she notices that someone is low, what should her next steps be? It's a very good question, and it's a sophisticated question that not a lot of people are are always asking. Um, a lot of administrators are uninformed about that idea that ORF is a thermometer, that's all. Just like in the world of a physician, if they use a thermometer to take your temperature and find you have a fever, they don't treat the fever always. I mean, sometimes this might be, you know, but the cause of the fever is not identified by the thermometer. So they're not going to fix you by plunging you in a bath of mm -hmm. ice water to lower the fever. It's not the score that's important. It's what it could indicate. So in the medical world, a fever is an indicator that something is amiss. But in conversations that I, that I have had with physicians about when you see a high fever, what does that mean to you? And they just start talking about all the things that can cause a fever. It can be flu. It can be now we have COVID. It could be a ruptured appendix. It could be other kinds of infections or inflammations. It's, it means something's not right. But what it does for a physician is then trigger a whole other set of assessments mm -hmm. called diagnostic assessments. And that's exactly what should happen with us, too. Um, our students have an academic fever mm -hmm. if they are not uh, strongly at the 50th percentile on unpracticed grade level text. What caused that fever? Well, it may be, and I, I do, I often, when I'm, trying to explain this or help teachers understand this, I will pull out Scarborough's mm -hmm. rope again to say that those students who seem to be stuck at the middle of Scarborough's rope where the pieces are being woven together, they can read, but they're not reading at that tightly woven rope. They're not reading well. Is that loosely woven rope caused just by the fact that they're not yet sufficiently fluent? Should we work on just reading more to help them become fluent? For some students, yes, that's it. They read quite well, but uh, all they really need is to practice, 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 practice to become more fluent. However, that's only a subset of those children. For some of those children, the reason they're stuck at that place, we go back to the beginnings of Scarborough's Rope and look both at the language piece and the word recognition piece. And what I have found for a lot of my students who, who struggle with becoming fluent readers, it's the bottom part of Scarborough's mm -hmm. Rope. It's the word recognition. They, they have some gaps 
or weaknesses in the foundational word recognition skills, like it could be they're still struggling with phoneme awareness, they're still struggling with uh, some aspects of word recognition, and if you're struggling with both of those things, you're going to struggle with the acquisition of sight words. So a lot of our students who aren't fluent, um, although they may be pretty good readers, are not have not acquired sufficient sight vocabulary. Their orthographic mapping process is is faulty. Um, and it may be, it's likely, if it is faulty, it's likely some deficits in phoneme awareness and phonics. And vocabulary, we know, plays a role in that. We are all better at turning words into memorized sight words if we know the function or the meaning of that word. So if a student is struggling with their fluency as measured by words correct per minute, we should do some diagnostic assessments quick. Mm-hmm. Um, not We don't send them to a school psychologist for a two or three hour deep dive. It's do a little check of their phonics, do a little check of their phoneme awareness. If you suspect that uh, insufficient vocabulary, academic language is an issue, um, we have some ways to take a look at that. And that's where, in most cases, you're likely going to find some things that we need to be working on along with fluency um, to make sure that we do get eventually to that tightly woven rope. So would you say, I know you mentioned that this is not always understood, how are people in your experience misusing the results of the ORF? Like they see a certain reading words correct per minute, what are you seeing some schools do that you would not recommend? Well, I would say the main thing is using it as if it were a a measure of Mm -hmm. fluency, that you have just used it diagnostically to assess, okay, you're not fluent, therefore the treatment for that is to do lots of intensive work to help you become a more fluent reader, which in too many people's minds means a fast Mm -hmm. reader. Um, And that's going to be an effort uh, uh, of extreme frustration for everybody if that student is struggling with fluency because of underlying issues. So I think we've, and the name of the Mm -hmm. assessment, being oral reading fluency, implies that to people. I I don't, I, 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 don't blame the, the end user. Uh, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around on that, but we should, um, we should rebrand that mm-hmm. assessment, not call it oral reading fluency. I, these days, usually just call it a measure of words mm-hmm. correct per minute. Uh, words correct per minute, which is a measure of automaticity, is an yes. indicator of proficiency in underlying skills. So if they're not proficient, that likely means their underlying skills have some weaknesses that we can go back and do some remediation. Depending on the age of the student, we are likely, though, going to do that skills remediation while we also are working on fluent reading of Mm -hmm. text. Um, So we should be doing all of that all together. But just getting kids, if the intervention is doing something to get the kids to read faster, um, that is very likely just going to fail and make everybody frustrated. So I've seen some teachers that have like a passage that they have all their students are responsible for. And the first day of the week, they read it, they check the words per minute, they actually graph it on a little graph, and they just keep doing that all through the week to see how many they get. What would you, what would be your response to something like that? Um, I actually recommend that. Um, 
uh, graphing mm-hmm. uh, students' oral reading fluency scores over time. Um, when I do workshops um, on uh, best practices and intervention, we've got to, if we're doing, if we're concerned about students, we, we really do need to collect some data and monitor their progress. I also, though, always talk about doing that kind of thing in a, in a differentiated mm-hmm. way. I think that uh, we always start with the classroom time that we have, and it's never enough. And if we're talking about the entire classroom of students, of course, we have great differentiated needs. We've got students who are probably um, in almost every classroom who are sailing along and doing great. We've got some students who are just making exactly the progress we would expect, and we've got some students who are struggling. And Given the fact that there's never enough time in classrooms for the instruction, which is the most important thing we do, instruction and intervention, I want to be very cautious about how much time is being spent on data collection. So I think teachers, just like physicians, differentiate data collection if you think about it. You know, a lot of us who are reasonably well, we only go see our doctor once a year and we get these once a year assessments and we check out blood pressure and cholesterol and all that. And our doctor says, everything looks good. I'll see you next year. If somebody like a good friend of mine right now is in, uh, in the hospital, uh, just moved out of intensive care following some surgery. Uh, while she was in intensive care, she was getting assessment, you know, every minute of every, of every hour, the level of assessment goes up when the need Mm -hmm. goes up in the medical world. And that should be the same for us too. Weekly assessments of students using words correct per minute is very appropriate if a student has very high needs because it is a very sensitive measure. And we can see relatively quickly over a period of a few weeks usually whether our intervention is working or not. And if it's not working, we need to do something different. I wouldn't recommend on a regular basis weekly assessment of our kids who seem to be doing fine. I do recommend for those students, especially in our early elementary years, those words correct per minute benchmark checks in the beginning, in the middle, and the Mm -hmm. end of the year, plus uh, teacher observation of the students as they're working, doing um, little checks of their spelling, which is a really interesting, um, you know, we've been working on words that have blends at the mm-hmm. beginning. You can decode those well. Now take out a piece of paper or a whiteboard and see if you can spell those words. Can you spell the word slam? And do little checks like that to see if indeed the kids you think are moving along are actually moving along, but that can be done just as part of a small group instruction or even whole class instruction. But I think we need to be cautious about the amount of time we devote to data collection and differentiate that based on the needs of our students. Thank you. And I just have one more question for you. And that is, um, Timothy Shanahan wrote a blog post about uh, I think I think it was I think you read a blog post, sort of a suggestion for a schedule, a, a literacy reading block. And one thing he said was that every day there should be time for fluency building. What what do you think should go in that block? I know it depends on the grade, but just some general ideas. Yes, and and I appreciate that that Tim did that. That's it is important because what we consider that goal on Scarborough's rope, that tightly woven rope. The only way we're going to get there is practice. 
Um, so it's not only just the grade level or age of the student, much more important than that is their skill mm -hmm. development, um, uh, where they are in the development. So at the very beginning of the rope, uh, fluency practice is more at the sound and letter mm -hmm. level. So kids can be doing some uh, work outside of uh, whole class or small group instruction in partners, or they could be doing some, you know, center work where they're practicing that. The fluency practice uh, with really beginning novice readers, typically that would be mid-first, late kindergarten, early, mid-first grade, would be practiced with decodable text. And again, that can mm -hmm. be independent. It's ideal with they're working in partners or working with a, uh, a older student or somebody who can listen and do some corrections with them. Once students, wherever they are in the trajectory, have broken the code, they really can apply their decoding to text that has more variety to it. Then, for those kids, just the act of reading. And for it, once they're really quite well-established readers, certainly for most kids that's going to be early to mid-second grade, that's when sustained silent reading, independent reading, can help you be a better reader. That's, that's what we, we do know that, that there's value of independent reading, but only once you've become an established reader. Before that, we, it's the individual component parts, the word level, the very simple text level, um, and more often that's better done not silently and not independently, but with somebody there who can listen and give you some feedback and practice. But all of that is fluency practice. We sometimes think of fluency practice only for those well-established readers, mm -hmm. um, but we can practice the component pieces text appropriate for that child's uh, developmental level um, should be done on a daily basis for sure. If we want to get all kids to that tightly woven rope, and we do want to get all kids there. Awesome. Well, usually I edit my episodes quite a bit, but I'm not going to want to cut anything out of all the wonderful things you had to say. Um, thank you so much for all that you do and continue to do. I just love um, catching any workshop that you're giving. I always make sure to watch those. And um, Thanks for not retiring yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your interest in my work. I appreciate it. Please head to the show notes for this episode to find links to Dr. Hasbrook's work, as well as the oral reading fluency norms chart and links to many presentations that she's generously shared and that are posted on YouTube. You can find the show notes for this episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 98. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.